Welcome to our 19th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO of the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we gather, the Wadjuk people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, amongst a very rainy and early morning here in Fremantle, we have the privilege of getting inside the heads and minds of some of our most creative local business leaders. Each one of our panel today were finalists and category winners in the Fremantle Business Awards 2020, the year that they said was like no other. The journey to business success is a different experience for each business owner and some pathways are easier than others. Hope Wilson, a senior marketing specialist at the global firm of architects, designers and engineers, Skidmore, Owings, Merrill and LLP, provides a great definition of business success as told to Business News Daily. She says success is running a profitable firm that conducts business with honesty and integrity, makes meaningful contributions to the communities it serves and nurtures high quality, balanced lives for its employees. As business owners, we must think outside our own doors. I really believe each one of our panellists today have built their businesses thinking outside their own doors. And how they have achieved this success will be a major theme in today's discussion. So first up on our panel, we have Ross Drenham from Fremantle's The Old Synagogue. Ross is an active entrepreneur, property expert and passionate business owner. He began his property career in 2006 and resigned from his role as an Associate Director of National Valuations and Advisory Firm M3 Property in 2005. Currently, Ross is a part-time property investor and operator of two hospitality businesses. Nocturnal Events, which is a national festival and event company he co-founded in 2009. And in 2008, he set out with his business partner, Drew Flanagan, to purchase 92 South Terrace Fremantle and began the development of the old synagogue. This hospitality precinct comprises of four unique venues. The Arbor, a multi-level beer and wine garden, Mr Chapel, an all-day breakfast craft beer and wine bar, Le Cham, a hidden old world themed speakeasy, and Tonic and Ginger, a modern Southeast Asian restaurant. So when one venue's not enough, Ross, we just find multiple and put them inside uh, another space. It's incredible. The development won Best New Venue and Best Venue at the AHA Hospitality Awards for Excellence. Ross is now looking for further opportunities to expand his interests and uh, is currently looking at Beaufort Street in Highgate to breathe some life into another sort of forgotten space down there. Ross is a graduate of Curtin University and holds a BCom in accounting property as well as a grad cert in property valuation. So Ross, thinking outside the door, you took what was quite a forgotten space of Fremantle and a corner that had been vacant for quite some time. Can you talk us through how you even started to form the grand vision that you had for the old synagogue and create that thriving multi-venue establishment in such an incredibly short period of time? Yeah, thanks, Tanisha. Uh, yeah, for us, um, we actually we weren't actively setting out to find a building um, to build a pub, um, but we saw that building come up for sale and sort of fell in love with the actual history of the place and um, thought, you know, if, if we had the opportunity to buy it and, and redevelop it, um, it could turn into something quite special. So very happy we did because um, it's turned out much better than we ever thought it could. Um, but I think that's one of the special things about Fremantle, having buildings like that with so much history. You don't get too many of those opportunities left in Perth, I guess. So. 
that was sort of how we fell into it, I guess. So part of the vision was really finding the space and the heritage and that drove the vision yeah. from there, do you think? Yeah, I think um, it's very easy to build a flashy new venue, but um, finding a building with, you know, built 120 years ago and um, there's two state heritage listed buildings on that property. Um, it was just such a unique opportunity um, for us that we thought that that would sort of guarantee its success um, in its own right as opposed to just running a hospitality business as well. Absolutely. And next on our panel, I guess, is someone else that also picked up a, a business with some heritage, probably more human heritage than uh, <laughs> physical heritage, Jay. Jay is one of the family proprietors of Old Bridge Cellars, an independent family-owned liquor store in North Fremantle and a local institution. Old Bridge stocks a wide range of wines, craft beer and artisan spirits with a focus on local producers and small batch winemaking. They speak local, act local and know how to build a community around a love of product. Jay, it must be almost a decade that you took over the reins of Old Bridge Cellars from a much-loved retiring character who was truly part of the fabric of North Fremantle. How did you and your family start to build on this foundation but ensure you made success your own? Yeah, well, thanks for having me firstly, Denisha. Um, so, yeah, it has been nearly a decade. We took over Old Bridge in January 2012 from Jerry Smith, which he was a sort of a North Rio institution and... For, for still to today, we get people coming in going, oh, how's the old fella, Jerry? But, um, and we found that site because we used to be a customer of Old Bridge and as a family, we used to go to the events he used to do and it was a privilege to be able to take on, on that to put our own changes and flair on it. So we identified, we bought that shop right in the middle of Dan Murphy's and the chain sort of mm. coming into the state and where everyone in the traditional liquor industry was sort of scared and going, what are we going to do? We have to fight on price. Yeah, and really cutting prices. Yeah, we? and we chose to just go in a different direction, actually champion smaller producers. We, we had to be hyper-flexible and just quality service and long-term relationships with customers was our legacy, sort of what, we, what drove us. So the mission statement that it was uh, not alcohol in a bottle but art in a glass is what we built everything we did around and built that community around it. Mm. And I'll come back to both of those conversations. And I love the fact that we've started a bit with the heritage of a space to, to the heritage of the people. And so often, you know, it's a combination mm. of those things. And I, I'm going to have a chat to both of you about the collaboration even that you've formed um, locally, which is quite a unique um, yeah. way to keep building those local relationships. And finally, our glamorous third panellist, uh, Kirsten Lopez of South Beach Boardies, winner of Best Local Product and Business Foundation's Growth Scholarship Prize at the Fremantle Business Awards 2020. Kirsten from South Beach Boardies heads an independent, ethical South Freo family business. Founder and ocean lover mama of four bodacious beach boys, Kirsten has a pretty much spent her life on the ocean, at the beach, in Australia, Europe and Asia. Since her childhood on the Cocos, Keeling Islands, horrified by the volume of plastic and other ocean trash that routinely washed up at the pristine atolls outer beaches, Kirsten has had been a long warrior for cleaner oceans, ethical trade and sustainable living. Struggling to find fun prints or flattering shapes and determined to clad her and her family and multiple others in clothing that helps the planet instead of hindering it, Kirsten chucked in her day job, remortgaged the house and South Beach Bordies was born. Now it's truly a family affair with partner Tim and the kids, Miles, Cohen, Ned and Sol all pitching in. And I think a local affair too. I've loved over the festive season, Kirsten, just spotting. We literally sit on the beach and play spot South Beach boardies because they are so do we. literally <laughs> taking over the world. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have innovated the traditional piece of marketing to create an authentic and successful business in an unusually tough time. How did you look outside those traditions to create a new definition of success for you and your family? Thank you. Um, I think the very first thing that we did when we were deciding whether we wanted to put more clothing into the world um, and all the issues around that is we decided that our first kind of P would be planet. And so that, that is the overarching kind of thing that sits over everything. Every decision we make, is it, is it good for the planet or is it not good for the planet? If it's not good, it's not done. And that impacts every single thing that we do. It impacts all of our marketing, it impacts all of our shipping, it impacts all of our packaging, obviously it impacts our product, mm. um, and it in fact picks up, impacts our price as well. Um, so having planet over everything means all of the decisions that stem from that are really kind of authentic and genuine decisions because we're doing it with this ultimate goal, which is to make things better, to give people options that they don't currently have or they're not currently aware of in terms of how they consume clothing. Um, so that's what we did. Um, and from there, we then looked at the local kind of community. And I'm just looking around this room and I think almost every single person owns a pair of South Beach boys <laughs> in this room. Um, we really started to connect then with, with place. And I, anchoring ourselves in Fremantle and South Fremantle has been really beneficial for us. But also we look at place in terms of how can we celebrate this amazing place that we live in. Um, having lived overseas for so long and having lived in other beaches for so long, every single day when I walk out and look at South Beach, I'm humbled and amazed by this amazing place that we live in. Um, the 18-year-old Kirsten who left Perth swearing I'd never come back yeah has such appreciation for this. And that comes through in our prints and it comes through in the way we've done our shop and it comes through in the way that we engage with our customers because we, we love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think, you know, through all of the businesses that we saw stand up at the, um, at the Business Awards this year, you know, there was a real sense of, of pride and of place, um, yeah. which is interesting, I guess, in 2020 when we all had to pull back in a little way and, and connect with with the place. Yeah. And Ross, that journey, not only just to place, but also to create a whole new community, which you've done in all ages. You know, the, I find the mm. toilets at the old synagogue a truly interesting and fascinating connection yeah. of multi-generational age groups. Um, I don't think I've seen quite ever so many of that range within one small space. And they all come obviously from all the different parts of your venue, you know, and that's why yeah. you see it in that one spot. But how did you create and promote, um, I guess, that community um, sense and to market to all of those different age groups? Well, I think that that's where, when you said we've created four venues in one, the, the idea behind that was creating spaces which could appeal to people of different ages and, and um, Taste and preferences going for different things. Um, we've got th three different menus across the, the whole venue coming out of one kitchen, which is certainly a challenge for the chef, but um, yet it, it allows um, elderly people to be ha having a quieter, um, nicer experience out the front when kids can be having a bit of fun out the back. But um, yeah, it was all sort of part of it. And then I guess that probably led on to your next thing with. Um, getting Jay involved um, with his wine list, which he changes every couple of months. Um, we obviously have um, frequented Jay's bottle shop over the years a few times and um, enjoy all the special wines he manages to get in there. Um, and then by putting Jay's list in, 
we could change that up. We could sort of reflect what the locals were enjoying at the moment, um, get involved with a great local business um, as well. Um, and I guess that just kick-started that um, conversation about trying to get locals in as well as drawing people in from all over Perth. Because in many ways you have created a destination for all over Perth yeah. um, that are really experiencing our place, um, in many cases, for the first time in a long time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, it'll just definitely, it's exceeded expectations, mm. but um, yeah, we hopefully it continues and we can see many more great venues pop up in Fremantle. Absolutely, we're certainly seeing that yeah. now. Um, Jay, you talk a lot about creating, I guess, those connections into the local community as well. Um, how do you build that? Is it just a matter of just being there consistently or is it through your digital channels or is it just word of mouth? How do you actually achieve that level of attachment that you have to your organisation? Yeah, <clears throat> well, I suppose there's a lot, it's a multifaceted uh, answer and it's, the shop, we're very unique of where we are in our shop. So we're very lucky to be in that little North Randall hub where there is a lot of local traffic. It's a very small suburb and there's not much amenity around there. And the, the bottle shop sort of were forced, not forced into, but we embraced having the fresh bread, the milk, flowers, food, because people would come down all the time and sort of go, oh, do you, you know, we're out of milk for coffee and all that kind of stuff. It's like, we're a bottle shop. But anyway, of course we've got fresh bread. <laughs> um, right. I'm yeah. really just going to Old Bridge to get some yeah. bread and milk, and but like, on the way I'll come home with six <laughs> bottles of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then social media for, for liquor has been, I think it's important for any, any business, mm. but in liquor, so the people come down and go, you know, the internet told me to, to buy this, um, which has been a unique journey. Um, and we've sort of identified different marketing channels for, for different liquor products as well. But the community, I think, long-term relationships has been the biggest thing. So I came from a, a healthcare and pharmacy background where we had to learn people's condition and, and who they are and then have a product to suit them. And if a new product or medication came on the market, we'd sort of talk them through it, how to use it. And we applied and trained that into our staff. So we learn your script. Denise, when you come yeah. in, we know what you like. You know my script, if there's, yeah. a new product, <laughs> if there's a new product that's come on the market that you might like, we'll recommend that to you. Yeah. And then we'll say, come and tell us how that went. So we've really, um, the, com the community sort of comes down and goes, you know me, you know, you know what I'm about. So it is that long term. And that essence of customer service, we talk about a lot in Fremantle because, you know, sometimes there's a talk that we haven't always got that part of the equation right. And I think, Jay, what you've just described with that analogy of a pharmacy is so absolutely correct in that mm. we should be reading the script of every single customer that's walking through our door and particularly at the moment when locals are driving our business as opposed to you know the international tourists or other people where we've actually got a chance to get to know people's scripts in a way that we've never had before because they are absolutely the focus. Mm. How do you go knowing people's scripts Kirsten? <laughs> I, was, I was really enjoying that analogy. Um, how do we go? We are so lucky in that even though we sell basically a seasonal product, we have so many repeat customers. Yeah. Um, they come back, they find that they love our board shorts and they might come back and buy three or four pairs. I think every single person at Oldbridge has our dingo board shorts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so often people will come, or they might buy our towels, which are not made from recycled plastic bottles, but um, everybody who comes, they come and buy something for a present and then they come back and say, oh, actually, I kept that for myself, so I have yeah. to buy another present. Um, so we're really fortunate in 
in that we get to have a long-term relationship with our customers. Mm. The other thing that we promise, we're a little bit different because I have come from a marketing background in that I really hate doing marketing. So, <laughs> Like an architect who never finishes exactly his house. Right. Yeah. So I never, I very rarely do anything exciting when it comes to social media. I have never once sent an email to any of our customers. <laughs> And I promise people that I won't. I'm not going to be like some of our competitors who every single day will send you an email about a pair of board shorts that they have because you don't need to know about every single style of board shorts that we have. Mm. So we try to make our number one um, form of marketing be word of mouth. And we get that by having those long relationships with customers and almost every person who comes into our, our shop, either they saw it in out of ours in the local paper because mm. um, we, we do believe in traditional forms of marketing um, or that, and we love supporting the local newspapers um, or they have met us at a market because we have really meaningful conversations with customers at markets and it's a great way for us to go and um, meet like-minded people and to stand outside the shop. Mm. Um, or more, more likely, they've heard about us from a friend and they've heard that we've got fantastic board shorts and they had to come and feel their friend's board shorts because they couldn't quite believe they were made from recycled plastic yeah. and they don't feel like you're wearing plastic bottles. So, um, so we, we have that. And that grassroots, um, I guess, identification of your local market works incredibly well in the style of retail businesses that you're in. Um, and I guess the interesting consideration, and Ross, you're probably going through this at the moment and looking at Highgate, is how do you scale that up? To different markets and can you take that same formula and translate it elsewhere? What's your perception? Do you think the synagogue works because it's Fremantle and it's this place and it's those local people and the word of mouth or do you think it is transferable, the kind of things we're talking about? Certain aspects are. Um, I definitely think so. I think if you've got a, a good product like both your guys' businesses, um, you know, if you find like-minded people who are really interested in um, like you said, saving the planet and um, thinking a bit more about clothing than just a fashion accessory, well, then, you know, there's those people all over the world. You can go find them. Um, same goes for Jay. I guess you, you could um, connect with people in many local communities around the place. Um, and, yeah, for us, um, to the same degree, we, we would try to do the same thing. I think Fremantle is probably a bit more unique than a lot of other places in, um, I certainly, you know, when we first started coming down to Fremantle many years ago, you almost felt like you're on holiday. Mm. Um, you know, people seem to be a lot more relaxed and um, have time to say hello to you. And even today when I was getting parking, someone's explaining to me how high streets shut down and is that why <laughs> is that why I'm parking here and just making conversation um, and I think that's what's special about Fremantle but um, yeah like I said I definitely think you can move your businesses around the place. And did you have a th you know in terms of how you created the venues within the space mm. did you think about that idea of you know are we going on holidays and and in many ways, we do get taken to different spaces and places within the old synagogue. Will you translate some of that to Highgate, do you think? Um, I think Highgate will be uh, quite different. Mm. Um, yeah, with the old synagogue, it was important to um, sort of consider the history of the place more, um, being state heritage listed buildings. Um, we wanted to sort of feature that. Um, and then also because of that, you know, people who live in Fremantle are proud of their heritage and, and the historic buildings so that was sort of more so the feature whereas we don't have an amazing 
um, synagogue in, in Highgate. Mm. So it's going to be a different challenge for yeah. us. And a different market, mm. I guess, as well. Um, I'm really interested um, in the way, and Kirsten, you pointed it out in terms of telling your story. So the markets are one way of telling the story. And Old Bridge use a lot of digital media to tell the story. And I guess, Ross, you do, you know, as well. How do you integrate such a strong story and vision on a daily basis into your brands, do you think? Um, well, for us, it is a way, it is a, it's a way of communicating. So mm. we do all the hard work behind the scenes of finding these products and learning the supplier's stories and where, where they come from. And that is the best way. Often on the floor, people are coming, coming in, they're quick, they're after work, they're flustered. So it's actually a way of, in their own time, their own space, being able to research, get all the information and facts around it, and then come in and be an informed consumer mm. in the store. And we have sort of, we, we do customer service training with our team that you can, there's customers that want to be by themselves, read the bottles, there's, and you've got to be aware of that space. There's customers that want help. You know, I'm cooking roast chicken, I want to be the biggest hero ever, help me. Yeah. And then there's the people that know it all and want to have that really conversation and in depth. So And tell you how it is, Jack. <laughs> so, so we use that digital marketing to, to share that story. Obviously, it's that direct marketing of bringing, you know, what we've got new, but it is mm. that information communication. Absolutely. And you've recently gone live with your own Blind Wine Time, which was hu yeah. hugely successful during, particularly during COVID. Um, is that another opportunity? Do you engage with a different audience digitally or are they the same people that come in, do you think? So, yeah, so that was born out, out of the pandemic, the Blind Wine Time. It started as Corona sessions. So it was everyone was locked down at, at home and still wanting to do the online tasting. So, and then it morphed into, so we'd send out the, the three bottles of wine hidden and you'd we'd taste through them with the online and ask questions and try to figure out what it is and then we'd cross live to the winemakers all across the world and, and let them tell their story. Um, it is a different audience so the customers there was a few that were coming into the shop that would do it and miss the tastings but it was a broader more engaged audience that um, wouldn't wanted to learn about the wine that we found we were reaching out to and it was also not it moved us beyond borders of, of time, you know, distance. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I really noticed that having participated in a few, you just got a sense that, you know, there were people gathering in all of these random corners of Perth mm. and that probably hadn't engaged with you just because it was a really fun yeah. thing to do. Um, Kirsten, plans to take the vision further. What are you thinking? Where are you thinking of going? Um, <clears throat> I just... I'm just trying to work out what I can say right now. Okay. <laughs> no, don't break any surprises. We don't want live today. We're here for the first time, South Beach Forties plans. Um, we are in a, a position where we have a lot of people interstate and internationally are finding us, but we are doing a couple of things which will enable us to go and be in places that they are too. So we've got lots of kind of irons in the fire, but I just don't want to commit to anything yeah. right now because it's all still in Because they're the... big decisions, you know, in terms of your definition of success, mm -hmm. a decision to work out how you take your brand and still protect the planet and put things on planes and do all of those sorts of things must be really tricky to stay faithful to that original vision. It is, and it's also more than that. So we make board shorts out of recycled plastic bottles and mm -hmm. we sell recycled T-shirts and we have great ocean messaging. But that's kind of, that's not our forever point because mm. ultimately anything made out of recycled plastic, anything made out of polyester or anything made out of nylon is going to 
depending on how good quality it is, it is going to shed microplastics into the ocean. So any pair of board shorts that you wear, unless they're made of cotton, that's going to shed at some point, unless you put them into landfill, that's going to start to shed. Organic cotton is a good option, but you can't wear it for board shorts. So that's why we don't sell recycled plastic towels, because they will start to shed. You don't need to have a recycled plastic towel. You do need to have a polyester or a nylon for board shorts. Mm -hmm. So in terms of growing our business, yes, we want to grow our, our distribution, but more importantly, we're trying to create, we're trying to work with fabric mills to create more eco-friendly fabrics in general. So, yeah. so recycled plastic bottles is a now thing, but we're looking to the future and how we can make fabrics that ultimately will biodegrade and will biodegrade in a way that is not harmful. So for focusing more on the, the, the supply chain at the other end to stick to that vision moving forward into the future. Exactly. Yeah, so great. for us, it's more about how can we continue to get better. Yes, we want to grow, but it's how can we get better and better and better so that our products are as, as kind of non-impactful and sustainable to mm. the planet as possible. So that's our vision. Mm, that's so, amazing. Sorry that it's not necessarily the business answer, but no, it's but that's the, part of what we're talking the, about today, I think, is that, you know, our definition of success for business, and particularly as bit local business owners, a lot of it is about the path that you've chosen to take. You don't go into creating a business, and I think that's where Hope's definition is so interesting right at the front, because it's also, once you start employing employees, it's, it's about then sharing the, the definition of success that you have with the people around you, and how you bring those people on the journey with you as well, and without yeah. that personal attachment to what it is that got you into business, I think that's often where businesses fail because they don't have that drive and that passion that keeps them going to the long term because I'm pretty sure all of you can say it's not an easy road and particularly hospitality, Ross, you know, I think everyone goes, oh, I love to own a bar and I don't think until you have, you actually realise just how incredibly taxing and difficult it is and that definition of success is usually all the positive stuff but going with that is how do you keep going through those hard yards to maintain that vision? A lot of coffee. A lot of coffee, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> and what's your workforce? No. I mean, you've got a big workforce now that you're trying to bring along with the journey. In Freo, we're just over 100 people. That's a lot so, to, yeah. to keep on board. How do you do that? Um, oh, we've got a great team there. So we, we try and empower the guys to sort of run their own bars and, and we encourage people to get involved and um, make hospitality a career. Um, obviously, we, we're still always going to have a lot of um, uni students and one day when the borders are open, backpackers again, um, which really do prop up the industry. But um, it can be a good career for people as well. So um, I think we've got a really good crew there now uh, after 18 months. They've been through a hell of a lot with mm. having to be stood down at certain times when the place gets closed up and that. But, um, yeah, I think if, if everyone's in it together and has a bit of fun, uh, it makes it a lot, a lot easier. Dang. And yeah. I love that. I love one night we were up at Tonic and Ginger and we had the little card to go down and I had yeah. no idea where Lachaine was and um, just how excited your staff was to show us their secret space. You know, yeah. it was just wonderful to have that attachment of, oh, my God, you're a customer, but I want to show you the secret place because I feel really yeah. part of this place and part of that mm. journey. And Jay, you had a few new staff come through. I mean, obviously, you've got a really strong family connection, which must be hard for, for new staff coming in and out of. <laughs> do you just embrace them into the Basin family or do you kind of maintain a bit of distance with them? No, it, uh, it is definitely a family affair. Sort of when we sit down and interview for new staff, we sort of go, this is a family dynamic. And I have a hiring policy that we sort of look for personalities. We can train 
we can train on wine and we can train on beer, but we look for people that will maintain the core culture that you've built. Yeah. And because you can have one bad sort of seed in there that can to ruin years of hard work. So we look for people and personality that will fit in with the family dynamic and then we'll train the skills from there. And we take pride in building people up. So we've had a lot of our full-timers go into the liquor industry. So either as beer reps, wine reps, you know, um, wanting to do their own thing. And that's saying that we can take pride in them. We've all always involved the staff with figures and markups and profits. And so you're not just doing a job scanning something, you know. I've had jobs in the past in the pharmacy, the girls, you know, oh, you've, you've put $1,000 in the till, so you've made $1,000 profit, you know. It's like teaching people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's some costs that yeah. go out of that, like a lot. <laughs> so we involve them in that, and that uh, helps them get a fuller idea of the industry and business in general. And so... We and enjoy what their that targets side of it. are to, yeah. to help those businesses stay afloat, I guess, as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, each one of you, in terms of the different businesses you run, you know, your staff for us have to, you know, know menus and different dietary requirements and all of those product-based information to be able to share with someone else really quickly and assess their script um, in terms of what they're coming in for. And, mm -hmm. and Jane, uh, Kirsten, I guess, you know, you're dealing with people that come to learn about your products in some way or form. Um, so there's some really interesting things I think for people that are trying to change their business or grow their business and particularly in this world where retail is struggling so much um, how you create that sense of connection with your staff that they can then share that story again with your customers is is a really important part of success I think any questions from the floor at the moment I'll just get a mic for you John just so that we can be hear you thanks Good morning. Thank you, everybody, for uh, sharing your insights with us. We appreciate that. I just wanted to follow up a little bit more on the, the, the concept of involving staff because it's just so important these days. So I wonder if I could just dig a little bit deep and maybe if, if you could tell me what, what's, what are some of the actual activities that you um, do to involve your staff in uh, you know, getting their ideas, getting their suggestions for improving your, uh, your business? Well, we've actually been involved um, together in a few things. Um, Jay's helped us out a lot with getting staff in um, and then Jay brings down his team and we go through all our staff with big wine tastings of all the new lists and our wine list is changing at least every two months, if not every month. Yeah. Um, and with such a big team and so many wines, we've found we're trying to ingrain in them that to have the confidence to... So someone, you're at dinner at Ginger... And oh, what will go with this dish? And if they can just have that story that will tick in their mind. Um, I remember when I was doing that training with Jay and Old Bridge team, that this one, it was super quirky variety and this will go well with spicy food. So to give them that little empowerment and that brings them on that journey instead of feeling uh, nervous that they don't have that, that technical information. Your team, after COVID, has been much more stable, hasn't it? And then you've been able to build that product knowledge with them. Uh, for us at Oldbridge, we do lots of tastings out the bat, so it's always voluntary. So we're opening up all these wines. We're going to have cross to these winemakers, uh, and they all come down, embrace it, and we put on pizzas, and we'll sort of go, oh, my God, it's 10 o'clock at night, and everyone's just been enjoying learning. And that's the culture that we've, we've tried to, to build in our businesses, that it's not, you know, we work hard and we play hard. 
So, and, and they really enjoy coming on that journey. Because that is often one of the challenges of that level of staff engagement is actually getting the staff engaged. So, you know, mm. often you put these things on and two people show up and you go, well, that doesn't really feel very warm. And I think having that level of attachment to knowledge and to learning mm. must be an incredibly strong driver to keep your teams yeah, together. Yeah, what Jay said before about, you know, involving your staff in more than just the work side of it with... with we obviously don't give your staff all the numbers which go on, but we sort of um, empower the staff and say, oh, you know, last week this bar did X, whatever, you know. Uh, we've got a big day coming up, see what you guys can do sort of thing. And then we, you know, we might choose, we don't do it every week, but um, we might reward a most improved bartender who, you know, a week ago when she worked in that section, she did X and now she's done, you know, 10% better than that. And we're like, well, congrats, you know, you're obviously getting better to trade. Um, and so involving them that way, um, our management, you know, we give them a lot of the figures actually um, mm. because we find that um, it allows them to sort of push themselves um, and think more. You know, when I'm doing the roster, well, you know, it, I could drop the wage percentages here um, on these days because I've been given this information to make that decision um, so yeah some of that um, empowering them in the financial side I think works yeah. quite well as well and as you say you've got to be it's a balance isn't it you can't mm. you can't blanch with all the figures but we'll do targets through Christmas like when we're all getting absolutely pumped and sort of dead on our feet it actually helps you go wow on these days we're you know above budget and we've got to puts it into a why you're working so hard and then obviously the reward after in January and February going that was crazy. Yeah. Let's all have a break. Let's enjoy it and, and make sure you're giving back to your team that have, have created the success of the business. And it's interesting that motivation on, um, you know, to be able to do that effectively, you guys need to know your businesses and your finances incredibly well. And from what you've just described, you know, you're knowing on an hourly, daily basis where your targets are, what you financially need to get through and I think for a lot of particularly small business owners that definition of success the very first one is a profitable business and if you're not actually making a profitable business technically you're not in business so that knowledge of numbers and information and making sure that your staff realise that they're part of that process and unless the business is making money they don't actually have a business to come to either yeah. I think is a really important part of that story. John did you want to ask something else? On oh, that just thing? I suppose a little bit more specific so for example Jay if somebody if uh, an employee you said, look, I'm gonna, I think we should change the shelving here or, uh, or uh, Ross, somebody says, oh, I think we should change the, something on the menu there. But what's, do you have a formal process for people suggesting things or is it just, oh, hey, um, Ross, I've got an idea for you, you know, is it more informal? Um, no, it's quite informal. Um, but we, we also definitely encourage, um, you know, anyone in our organisation can come talk to us. We, um, Drew, my business partner and I, you know, we're friendly with most of those staff know pretty much all of them by name um, and um, yeah we, we always talking to people um, and asking their opinions um, and then you know we'll invite them to a meeting to discuss it with managers the head chef if you want to change a menu um, and Kirsten and Jay I guess you have the added complexity on bank John's point about suggestions, being in family businesses, suggestions must take on a whole new dynamic, I would imagine. How do you manage that balance of that integration of family life and decision making with your businesses? Um, well, my husband, Tim, has recently come 
to the business. And I used to say he either um, got fired or quit on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> but we're past that now. Yeah. Um, we have, whether it's um, Tim making suggestions or the kids making suggestions or our, our team of staff members um, making suggestions, I actually try to formalise it and because otherwise they're always coming at me and mm. I... And I already don't sleep so um, I try to sit down with people um, if it's a decision about the way that the business is running on a weekly basis if it's a decision about prints printmaking styles because we obviously do our own product development as well then we do it on a monthly basis um, because I'm constantly designing new products and tweaking things and stuff like that um, but I do actually have formal sit downs with people because I want them to understand that it's important mm. and it, that both of our time is important and valued and therefore I'm going to sit down and actually listen to what you have to say rather than just kind of having a casual conversation. So for me, that's actually quite important to have that distinction. Otherwise, it just becomes work and life are never separate. Yeah, and I think it's important as a, a managing proprietor, as a manager, our job is to find people that are better, better than you and to harvest talent. And you'd be silly to then go, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so then I have found I've seen managers that will suppress the talent of their people under them to make themselves look better rather than building up those people and, and harvesting what they've got to do. So we do need to formalise it as well. And we have, and that's come from, we, we run our business with a lot of uni students. It's a great job in a bottle shop for nights and weekends. And they're often marketing students, so they're doctors or they're accountants, and they've got great ideas. So we say when in our recruitment policy, we say, we will encourage you to have ideas and listen, but in a formal invite. So we don't want, in the middle of the floor, you're going, oh, we can do this this way. Um, we write it down, we discuss it at the team meetings. Um, but we've had some amazing ideas come from that. So the way we've done it, and we didn't come from liquor, I wasn't trained in another bottle shop, so I necessarily haven't done everything uh, the, to the business industry standard, but we say we're first practice, not best practice. So we're just inventing our way, but we'll have to listen to people along the way and bring that. We've had the blind wine, you know, the mystery wines. We've had the gin subscription uh, recently that have all come from staff ideas. Hey, you should do this, you should do that. We go, well, actually, let's sit down, analyse the merits, and let's look through the financials. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to drive over Port Perth and deliver it. Can we make this? OK, then we'll embrace it. and and bring them along on the journey. So. And I think that's a really, really important part of that conversation because sometimes ideas come without the contextual understanding of the rest of the business. And being able to take an idea on board and integrate it into your business in a way that makes commercial sense always does need to be, again, part of that definition of success is saying we've all got great ideas. Some of those ideas are going to fly and some of them are not. And how do we actually have a conversation that allows us to find the ideas that are actually going to work at the end of the day rather than just the great ideas. And I think back in the day I heard a great saying that said something like, you take a really long time to get your people in and a really quick time to get the wrong ones out. And I think there's some really strong lessons around that as well. You know, and obviously each one of you, in addition to taking a lot of care with the product that you put on your shelf, you take a lot of care with the people that you choose to represent your organisation. That's a really important part of that journey, absolutely. Any more questions from the floor or shall I keep firing along? Um, if each one of you could pick one thing in your businesses over the journey in the last little while that you would do differently, what would it be, do you think? Mm. So I've heard a lot about what you do right. I'm just curious <laughs> to know on that pathway to success, are there any key lessons that you've learned or anything that you would change along the way? 
I think we're changing so many things every day <laughs> um, to pick one. Um, yeah, I don't know. You put me on the spot there. You go on. Yeah, well, I suppose Ross is right that we do analyse what we do all the time. So you'd hope that you, on the fly, change those kind of things. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, we it was hard to adapt. You had to adapt really quickly. Mm -hmm. So I suppose how we dealt with the the liquor restrictions and having to, and we were just getting on the phone. We had to implement phone systems and get extra staff in just to take orders because we had people in lockdown hotels and extra vans. And I suppose we could have maybe prepared business plans better. It was hard for everyone to to expect a global pandemic to come, but we we lacked the systems with extra FPOS machines, extra phone lines. The online store wasn't set up to handle that much traffic. So I suppose we've learnt to have those extra mechanisms in place for if this happens again. So that was one thing we wish we had more planning for. We, we adapted really quickly within sort of two and a half weeks. We had, were up and running and yeah. able to, to do that, but that was one thing that we'd do differently. And that's a resourcing thing too, isn't it? You know, if you work for a global oil and gas company or a mining company, you know, all that risk scenario and those plannings and those exercises you do to, you know, look at a catastrophic incident, in a small business and a growing business and a business that's going fast, it's very rare that you have the opportunity to sit back mm. and go, oh, I wonder what may be coming over the horizon <laughs> yeah. and maybe making some time for that. And Jay, as you said, that what we often do forget is the base of our business is so often having our really basic systems working, mm. having your FPOS machines working, having staff being able to enter things into a computer and the right product comes out mm. and getting that sheet to the kitchen or, you know, having your designs actually go and be made and come back in the right way. Those parts of our business, the absolute nuts and bolts of our business, are often the things we overlook. Oh, we'll yeah. upgrade that phone system, you know, next year when we get around to it, or we'll make sure we know how much traffic our website can handle. You know, I wonder how many businesses have ever even asked that question, yeah. you know, if we had a mega sale or if suddenly the whole world wanted plastic-free bodies, you know, what is the capacity <laughs> that our... Um, or plastic bodies made of plastic that our, our <laughs> systems can actually take. So I think it's a really interesting one, that lesson, around those nuts and bolts systems. Any other lessons that you think? Um, I Two things. I would have had more faith in myself and so started things early. Taken those risks earlier, yeah. um, I think that's my big takeaway from the last couple of years. Um, and actually, I probably would have stayed away from women's swimwear because it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Men are so easy. There are 34 or 36. Women are all different shapes and sizes. And when they come into the change room, it's a whole counselling session. Session, absolutely. <laughs> Whereas men just think they look fabulous and walk around half-dressed in my shop yeah, all the time. Yeah. So um, that's been a learning curve for me. And isn't it interesting that those basic human drivers in our customers, no matter who they are, that's actually what all of you deal with on a daily basis, you know, the, the driver of the need to, to be vegan and what that means and have the whole establishment potentially know it or keep that to themselves, you know, all of those dynamics, the, yeah. the ladies who need you just to tell them they look fantastic in a pair of bathers so I that they're comfortable walking on the you. beach. They always do, yeah. but they just can't see it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And they're probably still hearing your voice in their head when they've got it on walking down the beach going, <laughs> Kirsten's told me I look OK in this. I can do it. I can do it. I'm here. I'm always saying, go tighter, go tighter. <laughs> oh, I love it. And I think, you know, those two things or three things we've really talked about today in that definition of success, the systems that we have, 
the people that we have and how we keep and train and inspire those people on our success journey and our understanding of our customer's script. You know, I think there's some great, really amazing business lessons in there for all of us. And to be brave, I think, in what you've said, Kirsten, as well, to try new things and to, to have the courage. I'm sure, Ross, when you set up the synagogue and said, I'm going to set put four venues in here, everyone must have gone, no, mate, it'll never work. <laughs> but it did. And you obviously were very brave uh, to embrace that risk. Um, yeah, thanks. Wonderful. Any other questions from the panel? I think we'll wind up there. Thank you all so, so very much for sharing your knowledge and your passion and um, your definition of success. And to all of our listeners out there, I think that's our key for the day is to sit down and maybe spend a few minutes defining what our success is and, and who are the people that reflect that and how we keep them on board. So thanks again, everyone, very, very much. And to our live audience and all those listening out, thank you. And to Chris, our amazing AV man who makes this all happen. Thanks again, Chris. <laughs>